Uh, good morning. We are excited today because of what today represents for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. Throughout the centuries, one of the things the church has often done on days like this is that a pastor like me would come and say to the congregation, Christ is risen, in which the congregation would respond, he is risen indeed. And so I say to you, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Yes, he is. And so today we come to celebrate that fact. And so what we do around here is we like to study God's word. And so um, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, we encourage you to grab those. And we're going to jump to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you don't have one this morning, do not worry. It will be on the screens to my, lot, my right and my left. But one of the things we like to do here is we like to stand as a way of honoring and showing reverence to God's word. And so would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Hear now the word of our Lord. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The word of our Lord, you may be seated. Let's pray. A dear Heavenly Father, as we come on this day, we come to celebrate the fact that almost 2,000 years ago there was an empty tomb. And Father, what we pray this morning would happen is that the reality of that empty tomb and its significance for our lives would penetrate the recesses of our hearts, that every nook and cranny of our life would reflect this amazing reality, that the ways in which we live that are so often defined by a ho-hum um, approach to life would be transformed to daily hallelujahs. And so, Lord, we pray that today you would remind us of these truths so that we too could reflect the beauty and the joy of the empty tomb that we would be Easter people. And so, Lord, for this we pray, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, with how important modern electricity is to our everyday lives, it's hard to really fathom that at one point it faced a lot of skepticism. I mean, there were those who feared it, those who rejected it, and even those who thought maybe this is just a fad for the rich and the famous. In fact, some of its early adopters um, had a bit of skepticism themselves. Even the great Cornelius Vanderbilt, of whom some of you may have attended his school, um, that Vanderbilt, he actually hedged his bets by wiring his house for both electrical light and gas light just in case. And when you think about it, even the most ardent, enthusiastic supporters of electricity could never have comprehended what would be in store as we harnessed its power for our everyday lives. I mean, think about it. Everything seemingly in our world revolves around electricity. Not merely do we light our homes with it, we also heat, cool, and clean our homes with electricity. We use electricity to prepare and to keep our food. Electricity to commute and to communicate. We use electricity to prepare and to, and to construct and to produce. Heck, we even use electricity to date these days. 
Electricity is everywhere. And so could you imagine, no matter who the person was, whether they were a skeptic or whether they were an enthusiastic supporter, what they would feel when they began to see their short-sightedness if they showed up right here, right now, to see all that that power could offer them. You see, I think there's a danger in our lives as well that we tend to be short-sighted with another power. The power that is symbolized on this day, the power of the resurrection. I mean, just like electricity, it had its fair share of detractors. There were those who rejected it, those who tried to explain it away, those who were skeptical, those who saw it just another messianic fad, and there were those who adopted it. But just because we adopt it and adopt it enthusiastically doesn't mean we see the whole picture of what this power is offering for you and for me in our everyday lives. You see, that is why we often fall prey to reducing the reality of the resurrection. You know, today some dilute it. It becomes merely an inspirational story. I mean, just this last week on the nightly news, they had a whole segment talking about Easter and these religious holidays as a sign that we have hope even after a dark year. Inspirational, yes. The full thrust of the resurrection, no. The inspiration or the resurrection is far more than just an inspirational story. It's about redemption and about transformation and the power that God alone can give. Others of us reduce it. You see, in the day, the resurrection only has to do with our deaths, but really has next to nothing to do with our lives. It offers us hope that death is not the end, but we're kind of fuzzy about what that afterlife may exactly entail. And you see, both of these miss the point. Both of these miss the mark. Both of these are fairly short-sighted and miss all that's being offered to us in the symbol of this day, in the power of this day. You see, this day has power not just for that day when we will breathe our last. This power, this day has power for every day that leads up to it. That's why Paul, when speaking of the resurrection here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, speaks of it as that which is of first importance. Now, 1 Corinthians 15 stands as the great resurrection passage in the New Testament. Paul goes at length to remind these followers in Corinth of his importance of its truthfulness and veracity. It reminds them of the import and the implications of the truth of this reality. And he begins in chapter 15 by seeking to remind them of what they had already received. And he shows us something about the Easter story. The Easter story is not just about the day you believe and the day you die. It's about every day that comes in between. Notice what he says. He says, and this is what you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. In other words, he says that this resurrection reality has import not, mo- not only for your past, but for your present and your future. That you need the gospel every day of your life. Every day you need to tap into the power that is promised to you in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so that's why he reminds them again. And he says, I deliver to you that which is of first importance. Now, life is full of important things. It's important to brush your teeth and to bathe, a fact of which I have to remind my boys each and every day. Sometimes they listen, sometimes they don't. You know, it's important to get a good education. 
Important to get a job. Important to have friends. All these things are important, but they are not of first importance. You see, the things of first importance are the things that are absolutely necessary to live. The things which, when absent, diminish and ultimately destroy your life. Try to go too long without oxygen, water, food, or sleep. And guess what happens? Your life is diminished, and ultimately, if it goes long enough, it will be destroyed. And when Paul talks about the Easter story, he says the Easter story is like that. It's not just very important. It's of first importance. That the Easter story is of absolute necessity if you are to live and when it is absent in your life is that you will experience a diminishing and an ultimate a destruction of that life. That's why Paul will go at length to bring evidence. He reminds them that this is rooted both in the prophecies of Scripture and in the personal testimonies of men and women. That he goes, go and check the sources. Look to the Bible. Ask these people. They're still alive. You see, he's reminding them that this is not merely a made-up fable, a, a poor attempt at his distressed followers of bringing some hope. It, it, it's not the effect of a mass hallucination. He says, this is empirically verified. Check it out for yourself. And for those of you maybe in this room or those of you may be watching who have questions about this Jesus and the resurrection, Hear me straight. No one is asking you to check your brain at the door. Paul wasn't, and we aren't either. He says, go and investigate. Go and check the sources. And he says, you will find the truth. And as we'll find, the truth will set you free. And what Paul informs us is that this importance of the resurrection will affect our lives. Case in point, look at his own. Many of you know the story of Paul. He was once known by the name Saul. He was an ardent Pharisee who was not just a skeptic of Jesus and the resurrection. He was a persecutor of the church. And his experience with the resurrected Jesus turned his life upside down. Not only did it offer him redemption from his past, it offered him transformation and hope in his present and future. In fact, he goes on after verse 8 to point to that. that the, 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 the resurrected Christ humbled him. That he was called, he was changed. He says, by grace, I am who I am. You see, he understood that the resurrection was not just about inspiration. The resurrection wasn't just about death. See, the resurrection was about life. A life transformed by the power that raised Jesus from the dead. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to come and to show us why the resurrection is necessary for life. Why is it important? You see, Easter is about real life. The first thing I want you to see is the importance of the resurrection for your life. You see, Jesus frees you from the penalty and power of sin. Now, now, now here's a, a reality check. There's something wrong with you. Your family members around you can verify that fact. Something is deficient. Something isn't like working the way it should. And what we say is that that is the evidence of sin and brokenness. Well, you may say to me, well, I don't believe in sin. Well, let me tell you that often our notions of sin don't align with how Scripture defines sin. 
You know, often we see sin as this arbitrary list of these religious codes, or it's kind of like the the top 10 list of the most severe dastardly deeds. But the reality of how the Bible describes sin is it describes anything less than ideal. Notice what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned and fallen short of what? Of the glory of God. See, none of us escape. All of us are guilty because we never hit ideal. That all of us have missed the mark. And when you begin to look at your life and to look at through those lenses, you begin to understand that, that there is something that is constantly missing your life because your life, your actions, your thoughts, your motivations are less than ideal. And that's a big, big problem. And when you understand that your problem is not merely the evidence of a pattern of sin, it's not merely about the amount of sin, but the, 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 the object of your sin, the one in whom you sin against, you begin to understand you have a very big problem. You see, Paul learned that firsthand. That in every time we sin, and every time we act in a less than ideal way, whether great or small, is that in that moment, we're not just sinning against the people around us, but against God himself. If you remember, in Paul's conversion experience, what does Jesus say to him? He says to him, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Your sin is not just on a horizontal plane. It also has a vertical dimension, that you are sinning against both. And when you begin to understand that you and I are sinning against both, you begin to understand we have an infinite problem because sin brings death. That's why when you sin against somebody or you kind of fail them in some regard, what do you often say? How can I make this up to you? What are you saying? How can I pay this debt? You see, the reality when you begin to do the mathematics of sin, you begin to understand is that we cannot pay this debt. This debt is beyond your and my spiritual financial condition and position. That we need someone else with bigger pockets and bigger portfolio to address this issue because our problem is infinite. And so we need the infinite one to come to our aid. And that's what the Easter story tells us. That God himself came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He said, I will take your place. What's your bill? Give it to me. That's what Paul says in in Colossians chapter 2. That though we, being dead in our sins, God made us alive together with him, forgiving us our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. In other words, he says, I'll take your bill, I'll take your place, so that when you look at it, you will see paid in full. You see, the debt of your sin has no more claim on you if you have trusted in Jesus Christ. Because he took the penalty for your sin. He paid the debt. And this is why this is important. You see, sin has consequences. Physically, we die. Spiritually, we will die, and we could face eternity apart from him. But also, we've got the, 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 the physical, contemporary application of it. Have you ever met someone who's trying to ignore their sin or obsess over it? What does it do to that person? It drives them into some very scary or unhealthy ways, right? Now, a recent read of a psychiatrist who said that if, if, if he could only convince people of the assurance of forgiveness, 
he could release half of his patients tomorrow. You see, when we live under the, the, the weight of shame and of guilt, or we try to avoid it, it drives us in some very unhealthy directions and we become bound by it. But Jesus came so that we would be free from its demands, that it could have no claim on us. And then we can begin to experience life freed from that dead. But, but here's the thing, we need something more than that. We need to be free not merely from the penalty of sin, but also from its power. Because if you haven't noticed, there's this thing about you that just keeps on showing up. You know, despite your best intentions, don't you often find yourselves going against your own moral code? Don't you find yourselves being embarrassed and ashamed of what you thought, of how you acted, of how you responded? Why do we do that? Because there's a power evident in our life. And you see, in the resurrection, Jesus was breaking the chains of that power. You see, he was the first fruits of a new creation. He was inaugurating a whole new world order in his resurrection that then that power could be offered to us. Because we receive new births, we receive new life, we receive new hearts, new affections and abilities. So that now we don't have to move in that same direction anymore. You've been freed from being bound to one direction so that now you may be freed to live and to live for him and to obey him and to do life differently in the present. You see, he frees us to be human in a different way. See, Jesus does not free us from one aspect of sin only to be bound by another. He wants you to be free. He wants you to be really free. And that's why he came and bore our sin on the cross and rose victoriously. Because the resurrection, the, the empty tomb, stands as the receipt that we can look to over and over, which says, paid in full, this sin has no more claim on me. Now the second thing is that we need to see the importance for your world. That Jesus frees you from having to worry about your present or your future. See, whatever you face now or in the future, whatever pain, whatever loss, that we often feel a fear not merely of the pain, but we fear that it will end us or destroy us. This will end my career. This is going to end this relationship. This will be the end to my reputation. This will be an end to my joy. Life will not be worth living. What are we fearing? We're not just fearing the pain. We're fearing that this thing will be the end. This thing will destroy what matters most to us. And you see, through the resurrection is we understand that these things need not fear us. Why? As has often been said, we may not know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future. By virtue of his resurrection, Jesus is giving rights over the world. Paul refers to this earlier in this book, in chapter 3. He says, all things are yours, Christ. Whether Paul or Apollo, Cephas or the world, life or death, present or future, all are yours. That everything, this world, your life, your death, everything, future, present, everything is his. And so he is ruling and reigning and overruling everything for what? For your good. Paul says, and you are Christ, and Christ is God. You see, the reality of the resurrection, what it means for everyday life, is that the present is yours. The future is yours. Why? Because you're his. 
all that he has won, he offers to us by virtue of our connection through the Holy Spirit to Jesus Christ so that you and I can face the future with confidence. Why? Because everything's going to go well? No, it's not. Jesus prepares his disciples for that, saying life will not go great for you, but take heart what I have overcome the world. It's mine. Your todays and your tomorrow are mine, so take heart. That's why Paul can say with confidence that God will work all things together for our good and his glory. Why? Because everything's his. John Piper puts it this way. He says, in the resurrection, God has stripped pain of its destructive power. Whatever pain, setback, loss you will face, it will not end you or destroy you. In fact, as I've said before, Jesus is the truer and better roadrunner. That every attempt of your adversary to bring an anvil on your head will only end up on theirs. Why? Because it's his. And you are his as well. Third, the importance for your death. Jesus frees you from the fear of death. Let's be honest. I don't care how young or old you are. How long you've walked with Jesus, can we just be clear? Aren't you afraid of that reality? I am. My mom died young. Every day I have these moments where this little moment, this little flicker reminds me, this is going to be done someday. That one day we will all experience our last I mean, just this last week, I was watching a video about one of my childhood heroes, Tony Hawk. And man, the things he could do with a skateboard were amazing. And, and, and this video was about his one last attempt at his marquee trick. He said, the older I get, the more I'm unsure of my footing. And if I can land it, and the implications for my body become more and more immense. And so this film crew filmed him as he did this trick for the very last time. And I'll be honest, I started crying. Because the moment he like hit that last trick, he fell to his knees and wept. That his life was, was defined by this skateboard and now he was leaving it behind. And you see, the reality is that each of us are going to face that moment. We leave behind what has been most seemingly important to us in our life, what has defined our lives. And what happens when we become aware of this reality is we grow fearful and that this fear begins to bind and define us. You see, fear is a very powerful motivator. That fear can move us to do things that we wouldn't normally do. That's why in Hebrews chapter 2, the writer says that the very reason that Jesus came the very reason that Jesus obeyed and took the cross for you and for me, the very reason he rose triumphantly on the third day was that through his death he might destroy the one who has the power of death and deliver all those who for fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You see, notice, he's not just saving us from the destructive power in death, but also from the destructive power of death in our lives. Because that fear will bind and define you. You see, the fear can move us to become guarded, guarded and distant. It can make us selfish and hedonistic. 
or it can make us driven and cold. You see, that fear will rob us of courage, relationship, compassion, and joy. In essence, it robs you and I of life. In 2015, the New York Times did an article on television commentator Larry King. We read that he was obsessed with death. In fact, every day he began reading the obituaries. And the reporter wrote that he pondered who will give his eulogy at his funeral. The reporter writes, he smiles as he thinks it might be Bill Clinton. And then his face becomes blank. But I won't be there to see it. He's had a heart attack, quintuple bypass surgeries, prostate cancer, diabetes, and seven divorces. He was 77 years old when CNN dropped him from his television show. And he said when this happened, he began to be aware that a day was coming when he would die. He said when he learned of the death of Osama bin Laden, it drove him to jump to his feet. He said, I needed to be on air. I needed a red light to go on. Because otherwise I had nowhere to go. And so over the next several years, he would try to stave off death. He took hormone pills for human growth, four of them each day. He planned on having his body frozen so that someday he might have the hope of living again. He conceded, it's nuts, I know, but at least it gives me a shred of hope. Other people have no hope. You see, his fear of death drove him, and it drove him nuts. It was a fool's hope. You see, what this day symbolizes is that for you and for me, we have real hope. That we can be certain that there is life after death. Why? Because of an empty tomb. That there is certainty. But the reality is, does this certainty affect the reality of your day-to-day life? See, we are all dying. But are we all really living? Contemporary philosopher Simon Critchley writes this. He says, Christianity in the hands of a Paul, an Augustine, or a Luther is a way of becoming reconciled to the brevity of human life and giving up the desire for wealth, worldly goods, and temporal power. But many Christians today are actually leading desperate atheist lives, bounded by a desire for longevity and a terror of death. See, this is why the resurrection matters. Because Jesus is freeing you not merely to, to avoid the, the reality of life after death, but to affect your everyday lives. That through his death, he might destroy the one who is the power of death and to deliver those who for fear all of their lives were held in lifelong slavery. You see, Jesus came that we would have life and have it to a full. That you and I would experience all of the wonders of the power that is offered to us in this Easter story. You see, the resurrection isn't simply about Jesus freeing you from death. He is freeing you for life. Are you bound by the shame of your sin? Bound by anxiety over your circumstances? Are you bound by your fear of death? See that in that empty tomb, he is offering you a way out. You see, when we become convinced that nothing can separate us from his love, neither the sins of this life 
or the certainty of our deaths, neither the struggles of our presence or the fears of the future. If nothing can separate us, then and only then can we be the Easter people who can enjoy and embody his love. Beloved, what can separate you from the love of God which is found in Christ Jesus our Lord? What is the answer? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing can separate you. So live like it. Live in the reality of an empty tomb. Live in the reality of his love. Live in the reality that no matter what you may face today or tomorrow, because he lives, you can face it. Now this morning, I want you to take a moment and to ask yourself this. I may believe that Jesus rose again from the dead, but do I live like it? Am I as short-sighted as those individuals years ago as they looked to the power of electricity? Or am I beginning to be aware of all the possibilities and potential that that resurrection power can offer me today? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Father, life is hard. We have the struggles within us, the struggles outside of us, and the fears of our eventual death. But Father, I pray this morning we would take heart because Jesus is overcome. That every destructive purpose and every pain and every setback and every hardship or heartbreak that Jesus offers us hope because all are his. And because we are his, we will overcome. And that we can experience the transforming power of the cross and the empty tomb just like Paul because you live. And so, Father, thank you for sending Jesus. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross and rising victoriously. And thank you for sending us the power of your Holy Spirit to tap in all that you are for us. We love you. We offer this in Jesus' name. Amen.